Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial pursuit, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs all around the globe seeking to do the same thing you are. If you want to know more about this program or this podcast or want to get barraged by a lot of annoying pop-ups, check out our website, lifestylebusinesspodcast.com. Yeah, buddy. Welcome to the Lifestyle Business Podcast, where we believe building a business is the ideal way for you to create more freedom and opportunity for you, your family, and those around you. And those around me right now is my captain, my co-host, a man we call the CEO. Yeah. Do you think that's funny, Ian? That is funny. Thank you. If you stick around at the end of the episode, we're going to share with you another sweet way to take photos with your iPhone. This is of zero business significance, but taking photos with your iPhone is awesome. We've got a new way to do it. A little bit in the news, Ian. If you go to kiva.org slash lifestyle entrepreneurs, we currently have 25 listeners to this very podcast that are following along with our investment that we're making in developing world entrepreneurs. And so far, we've put out around $2,700 in loans to the developing world. That's super cool. And I'm seeing the money starting to come back into my account, Ian. So I'm going back and reloaning that money that was donated by... Chris from my egg noodles and we put in a hundred dollars each and we should probably up our contribution to that site. It's pretty fun. Really encourage you to join us. It's free to follow along. Bunch of shouts this episode. Two new iTunes reviews. Where's the applause button? Yeah, buddy. Love the iTunes reviews. User Yugra, I think we are. This is the podcast where good names come to perish, Ian. I think we destroy everybody's name. As Americans, we're just like super culturally insensitive. We have no idea how to pronounce any other names other than like Jim, Bob, and that's about it. Anyways, he booked it to Spain, quit his job on Friday and booked it to Spain. Thanks to you for writing us and telling us that it was in part due to us. I appreciate that. Uh, Will Evans, been a longtime listener since back in the day, 2009. Wow, throwback. Maybe we should do like a greatest hits, put some of the old podcasts out on the feed. We've got... 58 podcasts in the can. I can't believe it. Will, thanks for sticking with us for so long, and I appreciate you making your way to that clunky iTunes interface, giving us a review, man. We really appreciate it. want to give a quick shout to my boy, Venkat, over at ribbonfarm.com, one of my favorite blogs in the known universe. He just released his first book in stealth edition called Tempo. Encourage you to check it out. want to give a shout to our boy, Baker, at Man vs. Debt. He's coming up with some really sweet launch videos at Uverse Debt, which is going to be his new product for people looking to fight debt. And as you know, Ian, we are huge supporters of fighting debt. And if you are too, check out Baker's blog. It's one of the greatest resources around for that kind of thing. You enjoyed these videos a lot. Yeah, I really liked his new videos. I thought they were super cool. I think he's like speaking the truth on them. Just no bullshit content there. I mean, just awesome, straightforward, great mindset stuff great fundamentals, and valuable. Not like, duh, I've heard it before, but like, yeah, hell yeah, Baker. Like, you know what you're talking about. Big shout to you, Baker. A big shout to Chuck Brown, who got a hold of me via Twitter and gave us some really great feedback on the audio quality of this podcast. Of course, Ian, we're really strapping this thing together. I mean, I'm on super low bandwidth right now. You know, we're trying to find ways to record it in such a way that we're 
portable and mobile. You know, we don't have to carry a mixing board around and stuff like that, but we still want to have great quality. And Chuck Brown gave us some good feedback on that. And I also wanted to mention him on the show because his website is highly entertaining. You can go there and see all kinds of interesting facts and anecdotes about the voiceover industry. And it's actually really fascinating stuff. So thank you, Chuck Brown, for taking the time to proactively give us feedback on our show and to not do that on our iTunes page. We appreciate that. Thanks to David Crandall, where's my sound effect, ching baby, for the thoughtful comments on the last episode. Of course, we're giving all the links, everything we talk about in the episodes are at the blog, so you can go check it out. Appreciate David Crandall showing up, and he's got a new blog post out. We'll link you over to that about him getting out of debt. Congratulations on that, David. Ian, we've got two questions today. Aubrey Williams from the Anthropology of Business and ColdWaterKidsWetsuits.com. Give us a ring. Take it away, Aubrey. Hey, Dan. Hey, Ian. First of all, thank you very much for a terrific podcast. And my question for you today is I'm developing some new suppliers for my product, and I wanted to know if you could relate any experience in terms of contracts that you float out to your suppliers that restricts them from making your product and selling it themselves or selling it to someone else. This is somewhat new to me, and I'm sure you've been through it with your various product-based businesses. All right, great question, Aubrey. Thanks for giving us a ring. Ian, we are developing custom designs with our suppliers. How do we make sure that these factories are not going out and selling our crap to other people. How are we managing that? It's actually come up before. You know, we've seen our products on Alibaba before. We've seen our suppliers try and sell our products before. So I think first thing you need to do is you need to have a really good relationship with your supplier and you need to have an understanding before you start manufacturing together. These are your designs and they can really only be your designs if you've paid for the development most of the time. So that's important. But I think a good relationship with your supplier is the first thing that you need to focus on. Yeah. This is a great refresher course for us because we used to do this in the past and I think we've sort of forgotten about it. But when we were starting our business, we used to send small letters of understanding with new suppliers that just said some basic points of understanding, Aubrey, which is like, you understand that these are proprietary designs of our company. You won't be selling them to other people or you won't market them directly to our target market kind of stuff like that. Ian, do you think we've got that verbiage laying around in our stuff? We should probably get back on the horse with that stuff. We get a little lazy because you do develop these relationships with the suppliers and then you just expect that they're not going to screw you over. But in fact, it wasn't but a couple of weeks ago, Ian, that we saw one of our products up on Alibaba. Yeah, How do you react to that? Yeah, well, there's a couple of ways to protect yourself from that, even in Alibaba. If you want, you can contact Alibaba directly. You can fax them something and saying, hey, these are my products. And I own these products, and a lot of times they'll take them down for you. Yeah. But the most efficient way is to just go to the supplier directly, try and have a conversation with them. A lot of times what will happen, Aubrey, is that a third party, not the supplier that you're working with directly, will actually rip photos off your website. You've got, say, great photo assets on your site, and they're saying, hey, we can do that too. And so they'll represent photos on their site as if they could supply that product. And that's what we dealt with a couple weeks ago. Ways to deal with this, watermark. And there are ways to digitally track photos, but we've never done that, have we? So we are not really to the stage yet where we spend a lot of time protecting our interests. And I think that that's because we do still see ourselves as a bit of a startup. We don't have one product that brings home the bacon for 100 employees or anything like that. International law is expensive and difficult to enforce. And if you really want to hold a Chinese supplier to a contract, that's difficult. So I think a letter of understanding is important. 
that's something that when something goes wrong in that relationship, you can up-level that letter of understanding to a management CEO level person in that supplier and say, hey, look, we have a level of understanding here. This is important. I mean, generally people do the right thing. The sad part about all this is if you walk around any mall in China, you're going to find knockoff brands right and left. So they can't even control you know, their own country from ripping off uh, what they're producing. I don't think it's necessary, number one, in a lot of ways to protect yourself internationally. And I don't even think it's really possible. Yeah, I mean, the way we protect ourselves is by innovation and marketing. So I hope that helps, Aubrey. Good luck with your ventures. And thanks for calling the podcast. One more quick question, Ian, before we get into those meat and potatoes from Chris at My Egg Noodles. He'd love to hear about how we determine our profit margins for our hard good products coming out of China. This is a really broad question, and it's a great one, and it's a difficult one, which is probably why we're not going to do the best job answering it. But I wanted to give a few bullet points, things that we think about when developing margins. Two things that come to my head, Ian. You always need more margin than you think you need. Because when you do things on paper and on a calculator and you're trying to sharpen your pencil, generally the mistake people make is they draw things too tight. You know, they say, well, I only need to make 20 points on this because if I get a certain volume, I'm going to get this in. But you always forget about the mistakes, the overhead, the delays, the chargebacks, all the things that come. So that's just the first general rule of thumb is we're always aiming at the top of the market. We are too small to get involved into margin wars with people. We just can't afford it. And the second thing that you know, has been helpful to us is when you're talking about large-scale retail distribution, you generally want to land your products in your warehouse. That's cost of goods plus shipping costs for about 25% of what the retail price is. And that's just a rule of thumb if you want to distribute your products to any kind of regional or nationwide retailer in the U.S. Because you're going to need to leave a lot of margin in for not only your wholesale distribution partner if you have one, uh, generally, wholesale distribution partners, they're going to want to take 25 points, 30 points on something, but the retailers are going to want to double whatever they're getting it for. So that's just something to keep in mind. Now, if selling direct on your website, you can get a little thinner on those margins. But again, you know, cash flow is so critical in this. That's another thing, Ian. People say, hey, you know, if I buy something for 50 bucks, land it for 50 bucks. So there's a difference between buying it and landing it. Landing it is getting it in your warehouse. So if I land it for 50 bucks and I sell it for 100 bucks, I'm good to go. But depends a lot, Ian, on how fast you're moving that inventory too. Because that 50 bucks then is just sitting in your warehouse. It could be sitting there for, depending on what your turn rate is, 6 to 12 months, that cash is tied up. You can't grow your business. And then you only get 50 bucks back at the end of the day. Cash flow becomes a huge issue. Ian, do you have any idea off the top of your head? You should. This is a pop quiz. Do you know what our inventory turn rate is? How do you focus on inventory turn? Because inventory turn and margin is highly related. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, we've got a bunch of different products. I mean, we don't have any product that sits on the shelf for more than three to six months. I think six months is pretty much the longest. And a lot of that has to do with factory minimums. So if a factory might ask us that we order 200 of something that doesn't sell very fast, where I'd like to order 100. So that would be the reason why it would sit on the shelf a little bit longer. Generally, those products are higher margins, the ones that sit on the shelves for longer. If you have a higher margin on something, so say you're getting a four times mark on a smaller product, maybe less cash intensive, you can go out and really drive down your landed cost by shipping it efficiently, say, in a 40-foot container versus a 20-foot container. You get a big cost yeah. advantage there by getting a quantity discount from your factory. And then, you know, you got to run the numbers on this stuff, but you can accept a six-month turn. Whereas, you know, with some of our larger products that we're paying $500 for, 
we want to make sure that we're doing three to four inventory turns a fiscal year. So those are kinds of internal judgments that you're going to have to sit down with these numbers and sort of weigh them out and look at that bank account and figure out how you want to run your business. A lot of guys running thin margin businesses, cash flow intensive, they're rocking on their credit line all year long. You know, Ian, and we've made a judgment about our business. We don't want to touch that credit line unless tragedy strikes. And so that's just not the way we want to run our business. So again, there, there is a bit of that value judgment you got to make too. I mean, what kind of business do you want to be running? Yeah, this is a really complicated question. I think you did a great job of answering it. There's a lot of different reasons why you would set your margins at different points. Cash definitely has a lot to do with it. Thanks for the great question, guys. All the great shouts and all the iTunes reviews. Just been awesome. One other news item I just want to put in there is I met with some great entrepreneurs. I sat down with Chris Ducker two days ago and actually recorded a video series with him. I just got a lot of respect for Chris Ducker. On his blog, you know, he represents a big organization. And so he's not always bringing us into the back seat of that organization. But getting to go to his headquarters, Ian, and see him in person and talk to him entrepreneur to entrepreneur, that guy has chops a million. And we have a lot to learn from him as well. So that was a really great thing. I'm here in Cebu City now as well, meeting with some other people that I've gotten contact with from OutsourceToThePhilippines.com. In fact, they've inspired me to do a lot more with that site and bring people into an inner circle there where we can talk about the really nuts and bolts of doing business here in the Philippines. I mean, at any given time in this country, there might only be 20 or 30 people that need that information. But I think for those 20 to 30 people, it's really valuable. And I've been seeing that by actually, you know, I put up, consult with Dan, you know, call me for $200 to talk about, um, you know, doing your business here in the Philippines. And it's it's been selling. So this is really valuable information to people. And it's fun information to talk to people about making these radical business kind of moves. So just from a little bit of the news perspective, that's what I've been doing there. But let's get moving on to the meat and potatoes. So we've got an interesting one today. A couple episodes ago, we talked about fearlessness. And a big part of fearlessness is breaking and making rules. And Ian, you had a great speech about this idea of how arbitrary most rules in your life are. I mean, people think because it's a rule, it's meaningful. You know, you have a great attitude about this. Share your general attitude about, you know, how you think about when you see a rule. Yeah. One story that kind of relates to today's podcast about breaking rules is the speed limit. I was on my way to see you in Asia not too long ago. I think this was about eight months ago, and uh, I was buzzing down the road, you know, doing a little bit over the speed limit. It was nighttime, and I was trying to catch a flight. The man pulled me over. The speed limit on the road was 45. It was a double-lane road. And I got my ticket, and I said, okay, uh, see you in court. And then I went on my way to see you in Asia. Well, I started to do some research because I wasn't ready to pay $500 to the state of California. I thought maybe I should just put in a little bit of time here and see what I can come up with. Well, it turns out that the speed limit on that road that I was traveling on was actually illegally set by the state of California. It's a two-lane road. I got onto some legal website and uh, some guys started to help me out. It turns out that the speed limit was supposed to be set at 50. It was set at 45 illegally. So I took this information to court, I didn't get a speeding ticket, and about three months later, I was driving down the road, looked up, and the speed limit had changed from 45 to 50. What that tells me, basically, what had happened was they changed the speed limit because I had fought my ticket. And the only thing I could think after that was, well, uh, number one, I'm happy I didn't pay $500 to the state of California. 
And number two, how many poor saps drive down this road every day doing 45 when the speed limit should have actually been 50? And that's, I think, just a prime example of following the rules when you don't even necessarily know if the rules are right or fair. This story stands better as a metaphor, and that's why I love it. It's this idea that these things are arbitrary. Rules, in many ways, are created by people that are just like you. They're fallible. They're sitting in an office or a building, or they have a patch on their shoulder that says it's acceptable for them to make these rules. And they are, in many cases, making rules on different sets of values, different sets of interests, different sets of concerns that you have. The idea is the entrepreneur is always looking to challenge the speed. Always. You know, buddy, I'm an entrepreneur. I've got a lot of vested interest in what I'm doing. I'm not going to arbitrarily follow the rules that you've set out for me based on a different set of concerns. So there are a bunch of ways in which we get caught up. There's things that hold us back from doing this. We want to find, as entrepreneurs, more ways to break the rules, challenge them, set new ones, and construct new realities. Because being an entrepreneur is fundamentally about manifesting new realities. That is the most valuable thing to do. If you're falling in line, you know, you're just following a path that's already been laid out before you. But as an entrepreneur, you want to find ways to make these new rules. When you see these people that are so successful, you know, they're not waiting for instructions from people. They're just going out and making it happen. So what we're going to call this is three mindset frameworks that construct your reality. And once we get a better handle on these things, I think actually we can go out and break more rules and make more rules. Let me uh, start with the first principle here, Ian. The first thing that makes your reality that once you get an understanding of, you can start to work with a little bit more. There's a fundamental conflation that a lot of people make, and it's troublesome. It's between morality and legality. So the basic idea goes is that because something, a rule set or information is codified or it's institutional, that means it's right and it's worth following. Well, my sister, waitress, working her way through grad school, I asked her about her taxes, and I thought, wow, it must be nice. You're bringing home three, $400 a night, and it's basically tax-free. And she kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about, tax-free? I report all this. And I just looked at her like, you must be the only person in that restaurant that records all of your taxes. And she said, yeah. And I said, look, why are you doing that? What's the point? You are 20-something years old. I think she's 22 years old at the time. Like, You can barely feed yourself. You can barely pay your rent, your car payment, all this stuff. And you're like abiding by the law when everyone around you isn't. Like, why would you do that? And she didn't really have a reason. It wasn't because she thinks she's like some kind of upstanding citizen and that's her like duty. It was just because somebody told her that she should be recording all of her income. And I just think that's a little bit ridiculous. Now, I'm not advocating not uh, recording your income, but just take a look around you. Like, if you're barely able to feed yourself, and like you're giving all your money to the man, like maybe something's wrong there. Maybe like you need to look out for yourself instead of the law. That's why I love that blog called Sovereign Man, Ian. And the idea is, you know, a sovereign is like a nation. And so you sit there and you say, okay, you know, cool. Thanks to everybody, Mr. Politicians, 200 years of institutions coming up and wrong, making judgments about the way I should live my life. But at the end of the day, you have to be 100% responsible for the person you are. And you know what? I'm not going to hate on, on the waiter who decides to pay his full tax burden, even though could make a more sovereign decision and have some financial dissent, you know? But the point is, and what you're bringing up that I like, is that the entrepreneur is going to evaluate that. They're going to sit down and say, look, I know that there's a code out there somewhere, but 
is there a reality that I could create here? Is there something that I could do where I could find some advantage, where I could create a better world for myself and those people that I'm trying to help, my employees, my family, and my customers? And, you know, don't outsource it. Don't outsource the important stuff. Don't outsource your morality, you know, what you believe, the way you should act. You know, that's your fundamental responsibility to define that for yourself. Don't outsource it to some bureaucrat who wrote a law one day. You know, that's the idea here is that I used to talk about taxes with one of my old entrepreneur friends and he used to say, well, I can't not write off my second car because, well, it's a little bit gray in the tax code and, well, that would be wrong. And that's what he said. I'm thinking, wait a second, wrong? No, that would be maybe uh, against your interpretation of that tax code, but you're going to have to give me a better argument for why that's wrong. And that's the conflation I'm talking about here, Ian. And I don't want to make this 100% focused on speeding and taxes because you're going to find this all throughout your life. Just to be careful, don't outsource your moral thinking to codes written by institutions. That's important. And, and realize that the world can be a different way and that you can help create it uh, by acting in a different way and in creating a new reality. Yeah, these can even be rules that your friends set up or your coworkers set up. They don't necessarily have to be laws. They could just be like unspoken rules of ways of doing things that you should be evaluating constantly. Yeah, I mean, you even mentioned it earlier in your waiter thing. Why are you paying taxes when nobody around you is? Well, there's social pressure caught up in this stuff. You know, evaluate that too. Just because every other waiter in the restaurant isn't paying their taxes doesn't need to weigh into how you're thinking about that, what you want the world to be. There's a lot of times when that kind of dissent can be valuable. When you are the only person that's paying your taxes, you are the only person that's in dissent, you know, you're helping to create something new. So I think we're rambling on about that point, but it's an important one. Start to look out for the ways that you might be conflating morality and legality. The second thing, that fundamental moral framework, and things that we do not support is permission-seeking and credential-collecting. So these two things are a bit related, but, um, you know, permission seeking is just such a difficult one. You know, I still struggle with this all the time. You know, you want people to sign off on your ideas. And last year we bid on a bunch of contracts and we ended up winning one and we ended up doing really well with it, but we didn't have a contractor's license. I mean, this is a prime example of most people feel like, They've got to like get everything lined up and have everybody sign off on everything before they can go for it. And as an entrepreneur, you just can't afford to wait for everybody to give you the green light. You're never going to go anywhere. People especially don't like to cede power. You know, people don't want to give you the green light. They want to keep you in check, keep you in a place where they can understand you. You got to gas it, man. You got to go all out on this kind of stuff. And I was really proud of you for doing that and saying, you know what? We won this contract. And we don't have a contractor's license, but that's okay because I'm going to hack together the solution for it. And you did. You hacked together an elegant solution. It's messy, but it works. Everybody at the end of the day was satisfied. Everybody got paid. Everybody signed off on everything, and it worked out. But how many people out there, you got to ask yourself, would you guys be like Ian? Would you have bid on a contract that required a contractor's license without having that license? And would you have won it and made it happen? I mean, that's entrepreneurial. That's making the world the way you want it. And that's something I really admire about, you know, what you did in 2010, Ian. Yeah, so what we did was exactly what you said. We did have a little bit of a plan and our plan was to rewrite the rules. And so that's exactly what we did was we rewrote the contract. So it said that we didn't need to be a contractor. Now we did this after 
they approved the price, they liked the design, all that stuff. So we were pretty much in bed with them. We hadn't actually signed anything. So when it came to signing something, uh, they said, what do you mean you're not a contractor? And I said, oh, I thought you knew that because I did think they knew that. What we ended up doing was rewriting the contract. So this is a prime example of bending the rules and not doing any permission seeking before you get into these situations. All right, Ian, let me tell you the number one way I see this kind of attitude coming about. And there's countless examples of all this stuff. I see it happen with university credentials. And it's the primary kind of credential collecting that we see. Here in the Philippines, a common way to want to travel the world is to become a nurse because Filipinos see nurses as people who get positioned overseas. And so they think, well, okay, then I'll go to nursing school and get that credential and then go there. And unfortunately, as an entrepreneur, I see so many shortcuts. Like if I'm talking to a, an educated Filipino who can speak English and use a computer, I mean, I can think of countless ways that they could hack this situation. But when you have that, you know, credential mindset, you think that people need to give you the green light for stuff. And the biggest green light traditionally in our societies have been these universities that sign off on people. They're hallways. It's kind of like the difference between the bishop on the chessboard and the knight. Well, the entrepreneur is the knight. They have the ability to just jump over stuff. In hallways, people can stand in your way. You got to get the right grade. You know, you're up against all these arbitrary standards, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, credentials made sense in the past. They will make sense for industries in the future, like the medical industry and stuff like that. But these things will erode, Ian. We're in a university bubble right now. The value of university credentialization is going to plummet in the next decade uh, because it's going to matter more about what you can get accomplished and what you can prove that you got accomplished. And I'm not going to say across the board that a university education is valueless. But what I'm going to say is if your first instinct is to ask yourself, who can sign off on me? It's just another way to seek permission. That is not the kind of thinking that's going to get you to do these incredible things that oftentimes you need to do as an entrepreneur to make it happen. You know, another way permission seeking, Ian, another story is how we started this business. It's a whole other podcast, but it's just to give you an idea of in the position that Ian was in and that I was in, in our previous company and the kind of deal that we attempted to cut in order to start our company, I mean, it was offensive to the notions of our employment. Ian especially had such a strong passion to see his work positioned in a certain way, to have ownership over it, that, you know, he presented something, he helped to inspire something that was absolutely unprecedented. You know, it was, it flew in the face of everything we were supposed to be doing. But what mattered is that Ian wanted to rewire the system. How many freaking millenniums would have had to go by before somebody would have came by and handed you a green light? Yeah, it would have never happened. And the truth was, I didn't know what the rules were. So I was ready to just do anything. So it didn't really even matter. I, I wasn't even paying attention to the rules. I still try not to pay attention to the rules. If you don't pay attention to these rules, then you don't have anything to really live by. So I think that was a big part of us starting this company was we didn't really know what the rules were. So we were just going to do what we wanted to do. And no, nobody ever would have come by and given me the green light on some of my crazy ideas. I mean, it just would have never happened. There is this tyranny of experience, Ian, that happens. More experienced people sit you down and say, well, I think you're being a bit naive about this, and I think this and that and all this. We get the speech all the time. I try to be measured about that because on the one hand, there's a lot of value in that kind of advice because there's a lot of hard-won information encoded in it. But on the other hand, it's like, you know what, buddy? 
I don't have to do things the way that you did things. My life might not necessarily manifest in the way that you think things need to happen. There is a value in that having that aspirational, almost childish kind of feeling that you're going to make it happen regardless. I'm so worried about that advice because that learned naivete, that feeling that you're going to go for it. But on the other hand, you got to be a hyper realist too. There are these singular visions, you know, really experienced people cannot get your vision. We see that all the time. Experienced people sit down and give us advice about what to do. And it's like, this guy doesn't have all the information that I have. And so I understand why he's not quite seen. Maybe that narrow little pinhole that I think I can get through. But, you know, I'm still going to value what I'm getting out of this situation. But there is something about that naivete, Ian, that's super valuable. And I love the way that you described it. Everybody else that wasn't going to give you the green light, they had no capability of seeing what you saw because all they saw was the way things were supposed to be. Yeah. If you're going to stand next to the fire, you got to be prepared to get a little hot because uh, it gets uncomfortable. <laughs> Point number three is don't succumb to inherited moral inertia. Be a force in the world. There's two elements to this point, and this is a bit broad. What we're trying to create in ourselves is a process where we decide, we act, and we iterate. We're not people that hem and haw and sort of sit in the bleachers and armchair quarterback moral decisions. There is this philosophical idea that for every decision you make, you're sort of setting a rule for the world. They have this incredible sense of responsibility, right? But even though they're not really doing anything. And so it's like they're constantly caught up in this moral world where they're like, is this right? Is it wrong? How is it going to impact the world? Should we do this? Should we do that? And you know, you look at the guys at Twitter, Ian. These guys have literally changed the world. I mean, they're single-handedly, they've inspired these political uprisings, this power from the bottom. I mean, there are world leaders that have to change the way that they run their sovereign nations because of Twitter. Incredible. And these guys, they're in the driver's seat. They're making a lot of moral decisions for how that service operates. If, say, if a world leader cuts off the internet because they don't want Twitter to happen, how do the Twitter guys respond? Do they put it through the cell networks? They... These are real moral decisions. They're in the driver's seat. And they got there because they decided, they acted, and they iterate, and they tried to do the best thing. Yeah. And you know the guys that run Twitter? I don't think they started off thinking, hey, we want to run the world. We want to be in charge of all these important decisions, but you know what? They're comfortable making those decisions, and that's why they've been successful. The way to get comfortable with it, Ian, I think, is to say, you know what? I am going to believe in myself to do the right thing here. If that means you're going to want to influence somebody, if you're going to want to hire somebody, if you're going to want to try to sell them, persuade them, you know, all these things, Ian. I was talking to Chris Ducker the other day, and I said to him, you know, it's weird, like, all these guys are moving to the Philippines because of what I said. And they're moving here because of what I wrote. And I had that sort of moment like, man, what if I'm wrong? You know? And I got worried about that. And he said to me, you know what? That's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to inspire people. I'm not going to sit around and worry about, well, what if that guy gets in a car crash in the Philippines? Or what if his business gets bad in the Philippines? Or what if he doesn't like the Philippines? You can't get caught up in that stuff. You just got to get out there, make the right call. Do I believe the Philippines? is a great place for business people. Yes. Why do I think that? Here, if they're going to answer me a question, I'm going to answer it with the best intentions, with the best information I've got. And I can't just constantly be running through all these eventual scenarios because it's going to lead this inaction. And that's the same thing with sales, Ian. If you weren't you know, feeling 100% confident in your product, just, I'm going to sell it, best intentions, and I'm going to deal with it later. I'm going to iterate. I'm going to keep doing my best every time I contact this person. 
if you would sit and worry about all the quality issues that could happen to that person in the next five years, you would never get off your butt in the first place to try to influence this person in the moment to buy your product. A lot of people, they put so much moral burden on themselves. The real moral beauty I see is in action. It's not in the theory that you came together with while you were sitting on the armchair. The real moral beauty is in getting out there with people, interacting with them, inspiring with them, getting feedback from them, and trying to do right by them. Booyah! I'm going to do right by all the listeners who are just like, what happened to our podcast? Here? <laughs> These guys just like took it, and they've stolen it, and they've taken it and turned it into some ridiculous moral talk. So let's just get on to the quick tips, tricks, and or we're not going to tell a funny joke section. Well, one quick tip I want to share is Hipstamatic. Hipstamatic is a really cool iPhone application that turns your phone into like an old school camera, puts these really sweet filters over your photography. You can switch your lenses, you can switch your flashes if you've got an iPhone 4, you can switch your film quality. It's awesome. It's just another way, Ian, to make it fun to take photos on your phone. I don't carry a camera, only carry the phone. Pro HDR and Hipstamatic have been fantastic applications. I've really enjoyed using them. I think they're both $2, and they make it so much more fun to use the phone. One other thing that I really enjoy about the iPhone and I've been using a lot is the Kindle app. So if you have a Kindle, like we recommend and like we love, you can get a Kindle app on your iPhone or iPad and sync all your library with your iPhone. You know, wherever I am, I can pull up my books on my iPhone, and it's actually a really great reading experience. So I definitely recommend that. Yeah, buddy, I took your advice and did that the other day. It's pretty cool. How would you rate the reading experience on your phone versus on the Kindle? I love the Kindle. It's great. I love it. On the iPhone, it's decent too. I mean, I feel like I read a little bit quicker on the iPhone just because less words on each kind of screen. So I feel like I read a little bit quicker. All right, well, guys, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, buddy. got a little bit of traveling to do, man. All right, let's get moving. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. We do encourage you to go make a cold call. Talk to you next week, Ian. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Don't be shy. We've got a mailing list, lifestylebusinesspodcast.com. Go there, get yourself signed up, and we'll keep you up to date on everything.